Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Raphael. I wanted to congratulate you on that this is our, I think, 103rd episode. Oh, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, we we kind of just breezed through the 100. We're like, oh, I forgot. Oh, wow. It's kind of like a 100-year-old, like an old, an old woman or man on their birth, 100th birthday. It's like, like, what? <laughs> it was my birthday? I didn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, I, yes. That's important yeah. to you young people, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but it it is uh, it is funny because it it does seem like the hardest thing f- for a lot of uh, web publishing is persistence to, to blog regularly to post regularly and it seems uh, up until I had my breakdown and then now again <laughs> but it seems pretty easy to do it every week and now again are you having another breakdown no no but I mean now we're in the flow again and and because uh, the yeah. topic is movies I'm comfortable and uh, yeah I mean yeah. ultimately we always did this just for fun I, I, I'm reminded just that like. Not all collaborations are as fun as as this, and I think um, no, because it, it seems like there's really no. We're not measuring anything, so there's really <laughs> we're not like this has to be the next Joe Rogan uh, popular scale, uh, or, or we're not. You know, when you make an exhibition and you're like, yeah, the projection was not as good as I wanted to, and I don't think the press release, and we didn't get so much. There's not none of that. Yeah, I don't know. It's not like I'm packaging advice here, but I just wanted to say thank you for all of the the episodes. I really look forward to it every week. And I think that's always a good sign of good collaboration is if you're looking forward to it. And I have a few friends like that where I really look forward to trying out things with them and and just experimenting. And I think that's what this is. So I know like for our listeners, it could be frustrating that we've evolved. It could be like exciting or interesting. Ultimately, it's very selfish, uh, but it's basically it's just... I mean, my relationship. Why with is you it selfish? And, well, just because we've done whatever the hell we wanted to do for ourselves. Yeah, but we, think, we do offer it for free. That's true. I mean, yeah, no one has to. Yeah, well, that. I, I think that's been an ongoing debate between us. But I think if an artist does whatever he or she wants exactly, that's a generous thing. Mm-hmm. Even yeah. even if they're making money with it, I think it's someone writing a song about something they care about, and then it resonates with other people. Uh, I don't think that's selfish. No, no. I, I mean, I think the act is like, here's the other thing is, and, and this kind of gets us into t- this week's, not that I want to jump straight into this week's um, film, but. No, but it um, does, it does relate to it. Yeah. But selfish, selfishness or narcissism. A lot of people characterize self-expression, these. Self-expression, self, yeah. self, self-promotion or, or like the development of a character. And the, uh, yeah. 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 But all, you know, we're obviously we're going to talk about Paris was burning, but like at the outset, I would say like, you know, your perception that some of these things are negative, like is being selfish negative? Well, I don't think it's negative to be selfish if you're taking care of yourself so that you can, you know, be better for like, well, the, for, the, the, the classic example of selfish is like you're at a, at a dinner and it's time to do dishes and you are like, okay, bye-bye. That's, yeah, but I, yeah. So that's the definition that I wouldn't, I wouldn't ascribe to, or, but if, if selfish is like, I'm going to do something cause I, I love it and I care about it. Or I'm yeah. going to try something because I have the you know the free will to try things. I think that that's a great kind of selfish. Yeah. The other thing is like narcissism. You know, it's like if you're I don't know how you grew up, but I didn't feel like I fit in um, in very many circles, and so <clears throat> and I and I was a bit narcissistic, but like it was a way of just like feeling whole. You know, like. Um, well, there's there's also the I don't know if that's narcissism, but there's the idea that uh, you have some talents and you're you're ten or twelve and you feel energy and you want to do something with it and you see examples of people that take that talent very far. So let's say someone is a professional athlete or a scientist or a musician and you see that there's definitely like the, oh they get rewards they're they're popular therefore they people adore them but there's also the fact that they get to spend their life the way they want to yeah yeah and like I mean, li- living on your terms and working on what you want like you might see your parents and they have a job that you're not into and you see them having a lot of stress for going to that job and you're like no i i want to have a fun life uh, which kind of goes to this, the movie Paris is Burning is before Instagram, but I'm also talking about the weird Instagram thing where you only see the, the good side of someone. Yeah. yeah and then yeah, yeah. You, you have these examples that you just can't, uh, you can never live up to because it's not real. 
yeah, the, the, you know, the pre- presentation of perfection uh, in contrast with the reality of uh, just living. And that's maybe why this podcast is so fun, because it's definitely not perfect. And, uh, <laughs> we, never, we never pretend to. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so let's get into the movie, though, which I think um, yeah. we'll, we'll kind of touch on a lot of these things. And then there's some controversy, obviously, underlying this movie. I, it, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised you actually agreed to let me <laughs> screen this, because it's probably one of the more political films uh we could choose you could view but, it in, in different ways yeah yeah well i know and that's the thing like i wanted to talk about how i first encountered the film and probably like a lot of folks um you know someone mentioned it in passing like oh you've never seen you know paris is burning or something like that and well maybe we should check we it should, out we should go back one step and say uh, we were just reviewing movies i was choosing movies you were choosing movies and we were not thinking about the male to female director ratio so you brought this up because it's a female director. Yeah, and it's funny because like I could not have chosen a more controversial <laughs> female director, yeah. uh, which we'll get into. But uh, yeah, Jenny Livingston is the director of this film. Um, it was originally released in 1991, I think, or something, ni- early 90s. Um, yeah, I think it was filmed in the late 80s and released in the early 90s. Yeah, and it actually was a bit of a sensation, I think. Though I obviously I wasn't I was around, but I don't remember um, when it first came out. Like it premiered at Sundance, I think, and, and won some awards. But then I think you know it's had several revivals uh, since then um, that uh, have made it you know among probably the most cited uh, films, and then also also like cited in terms of our contemporary culture and some of the things we might take for granted. So what yeah, do I and mean it by seems that? To, like, to predate a lot of things that are, are common now. Mm-hmm. And it's not so much the film, so much as like the contents of the film, and you know, people like Beyonce and others, and Madonna, obviously, who appropriated from the film, have like you know referenced it in popular culture. So this this is kind of like um, when you talk about culture, you often talk about memes, and when you talk about memes, you have to know the origin of that word is cultural gene. And the idea of a cultural gene and a meme is that it can mutate and multiply uh, through other people's expression and work. So it's not just like, um, a, you know, a dog sitting in a burning house. That's not necessarily the origin of the word meme. Um, it's this idea of a cultural gene. So very much so, I would I would characterize Paris is Burning as um, material, gen- like culturally genetic uh, material or a meme. Well, maybe, maybe we can explain a little bit uh, what the movie is. Yeah, so the movie itself is, you know, uh, takes place in the in the 80s. Um, it's t- over seven years, I think. And it, it sort of follows um, in, a, in a loose documentary, documentary style. That is to say, it's like, um, there's not like a specific narrative, though there is kind of embedded in it. Um, but it, it sort of looks at um, this, co- what's called ball culture, but like this dr- sort of what you would characterize maybe as like, drag culture in these and these things called balls in Harlem in New York so all all sorts of folks from the LGBTQ uh, community you know in these in this setting but specifically uh, what's interesting probably about Paris is Burning is it's in Harlem and so it's mostly um, you know people of color specifically black people and Latinx people that are um, part of these houses uh, which are, you know, we could get, there's so much detail to get into, but which are these like kind of families that uh, compete in these drag contests, which are called balls. Is that a good summary? Yeah, like maybe maybe to put it very simply, um, the movie follows a group of people that are competing and they're creating personas and the, the personas are kind of gender fluid. So it sometimes... It, it's never really clear. They they don't stress too much, like, is this a man dressed as a woman or a woman dressed as a man or what is it? Everybody's creating characters and, and living out of fantasy. And I think one of the undercurrents is that all these people in the movie, or a lot of the theme seems to be that they want to aspire to be a businessman or a suburban mom or sort of the the dream of economic security, but in a almost like a caricature of it and making fun of it at the same time. So yes, you'll yeah. see someone dressed up as if they're in the military when at the time they were not allowed to be in the military. Yeah, so one of the more interesting aspects of it and something you know Jenny talks about when she sort of came across this culture, um, we'll get into the problems with that, but like what she was excited about was here is a place where you have you know the people in New York specifically that are 
really kind of uh, have very little available to them in terms of like prospect in life. And they are asserting power and identity and constructing that um, through persona and through adopting what they see in fashion magazines. So as an example of that, um, or, you know, is voguing, which is like sort of popularized by the film and then later appropriated by broader culture. But voguing is this in, in, you know, in performance and in dance and drag performance is this idea that you are very rapidly proceeding through different poses like you'd see in magazines with hand on cheek, you know, hand on chin, those kind of like cliched 1980s Yeah, it's almost like taking the idea of, of a still and animating it. So it's, it's a, a sequence of stills that then becomes a yeah. dance. But the original like cultural kind of moment, like you said, was like how c- I want to appear like someone in a fashion magazine because that's what I aspire to be. Even though it's unavailable yeah. to me, I can make it available to me via this community. But what I found interesting is that it wasn't just uh, voguing and looking like a model and like, oh, I want to be in the fashion magazine. Yeah. It was also people who would dress as a normal business person or as someone in the military or yeah. as a suburban mom. Yeah. And so it's really a lot about the unattainable. And, and that and was like one of the more exciting, like when I first saw this movie, that's the most exciting part for me. I mean, everyone's going to take what they they like, but this idea that... Um, they were not just constructing female identity or high fashion identity. They were also constructing like, I want to have the identity of a Wall Street business professional. Right? And these, these are the societies that ex- had excluded these people. And so it was, I don't know, it's like this political act of re, um, reintroducing that as, no, that is something that I can be. And you're the one holding me back from achieving that. Um, and so I'm going to take back control. And perform it. I love the business one actually. It's so yeah, funny. Of course you do. Watch. Um, <laughs> yeah, of course I do. And the military one's yeah. quite funny too. But yeah, you know, you're right. Like the diversity of different approaches. It's just so special when you see it on camera, and the audience is so supportive. It really, for me anyway, is reminiscent of some of my early experiences as an artist, but also in the drag and queer community here in Toronto. Um, what it feels like to be at an event like that. Like I performed a couple of times, um, once as a giant penis, <laughs> another time as like a, actually I wasn't a giant penis in that one. I was, uh, once I, I was like a, an old lady and what was I another time? I think I was just myself, a hip, like a hip hop version of myself with no pants on. But <clears throat> like I performed several times and the feeling in these communities is one like where you just belong and anything's possible. And, you know, the creativity is so outlandish sometimes that it just like, you know, barriers melt away and everyone's just having fun. It's pretty, you know, rare That's, to uh, have that experience. Yeah. Have you been Have you been to live events like this that uh, in Harlem or other places that are similar to the movie? So that's the thing. I have only um, been to events here in Toronto um, and or and or I've created my own events in and things like that, but. Um, but not on this scale for 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 sure. Performing here in Toronto, though, there are a bunch of smaller bars um, and specific kind of places where the scene, just similar to this uh, venue in Harlem, where it's just like every week, you know, there's like an event, and you can once you start it, you start by attending, and then before long, you're like participating, and then you know because and that kind it, of is the, the 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 safer version of this culture because it seems the from this movie that a lot of the people in these balls in Harlem were really people without family or a home and drugs yeah. and danger. Yeah. So I had the, so definitely the, the, the thing you're describing is, yeah. is, is the accepted uh, middle-class uh, social democratic version. Probably I would say, you know, the, I think the other thing about this film, obviously you have to state is like in many cases, these people had been cast out of their homes. They were either homeless yeah. um, or, you know, they just or they didn't have very much prospect. And so, you know, in the case of the trans folks in the film, they were, you know, had had multiple attempts on their lives in terms of, you know, being potentially assaulted or murdered. And in, in fact, you know, one of the more Some famous were murdered. Yeah. One of the more famous characters in the film or people, um, one of the extravaganzas was was murdered. And so during the filming. Right. So it, 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 there's very real threat. And this is like, you know, their way of navigating this extremely and remember this is in the 80s so a lot of people are dying of aids as well in the gay community so there's a this hostility in the world that they're surviving in new york this is the other thing i think is really kind of nice about the film and i don't know if i've seen anyone else talk about this but 
you know, a lot of people knock Jenny Livingston for having appropriated this culture. But one thing I, I, you know, I always look for in films of New York is capturing this weird energy that New York has or has had, like, you know, being on the street, hanging out. (laughs) And there are a few scenes like with those two young kids, those like two 15 year olds, where it really feels like New York. And you're like, I've, yeah. I've totally like, like strolled up. I, yeah, I've strolled up to two kids like this on a hot summer night in New York. And that's what it feels like. And it's really like, I don't know, I, I got well, caught up. We, in we it. discussed Tokyo Ga last week. And it's also really what it feels like. And so it's maybe it's not even that hard to really capture something. I don't know. Maybe but not. It maybe, yeah, it's true. Yeah. I haven't gone. Um, it's just like when you're, I think maybe because. Well, I, I remember you came to our apartment and you looked out the window and you're like, oh, this is like the opening shot of a Spike Lee movie. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It definitely looks like that. Um, anyway, I, yeah. I enjoyed the aesthetics of the, the film is shot on, it looks like 16 millimeters. So it's a lower aesthetic. I know that Jenny Livingston hadn't really made a film prior to this. I think she was. Um, she was uh, just like had taken one or two film courses or something like that. And uh, she was just fascinated by the culture. Yeah. Th- th- one of the things that I find interesting about the idea of a scene is this idea that you have a lot of people working together, but also there's an adversity. So I remember being in, in Berlin with all the post-internet people and we were all getting along and doing a lot of stuff together and speaking to a curator and was like oh it's so great it's all our friends and we're all doing stuff together and discussing work and she's like oh yeah that'll only last two years and then you'll all be very competitive and not talk to each other and it's kind of true you get busy and you get so if you see i'm trying to say two things there's the, the idea of bouncing ideas against each other and then there's the idea of of in the end, people want to promote themselves, and so then there's rivalry. And, and I guess that's part of the narrative. I don't know if you film. felt that in this movie. No, you do. You feel it a little bit because um, there's a kind of a free competitive, uh, like competitive spirit that feels like creative. But then you find out, like later in the film, different people are kind of, you know, more or less getting attention. Um, and this guy Ninja ended up getting quite a lot of attention. Um, or that's yeah, but a, he's a good example. Like you see the movie, and he's clearly the most focused and the best at the, uh, de- dancing and choreography like if you purely see it through that lens he he's mm. the the most outs- the most crystallized version of that right and i mean you're right in any scene you have this you start with this like level playing field and everyone kind like of some says people like some people uh, yeah some people in the movie are real characters and you, when they speak it's very interesting and they're very um, they're so far from you that they're very fascinating. Yeah, but then when you yeah. see the performance and you see Ninja dancing, it's just, it's clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, I guess this there's a tension between acceptance and excellence or something like that. Anyway, he goes on to be a, a like a, a more famous choreographer. Now, everyone in the film like struggled in some way, you know, so the struggle was real. I don't think anyone is surviving of the film. Almost everyone no, and this, passed away. I, I sent you that little YouTube clip of life after Paris is burning. And mm-hmm. then it, it was kind of an, uh, put together by a fan, like a five minute, 10 minute clip. Mm-hmm. And basically everyone in the film died within three to five years. Yeah, it's quite tragic. It's not, it, yeah, <laughs> I mean, obviously, AIDS had a huge. I don't. Impact. I don't think you realized that so, when when you were like, "Let's review this movie." Yeah, yeah. No, you're right, and you know, and I think like the other thing is, you know, when I when I said let's review this film, I was just interested, like I said, in terms of its cultural genetics, and so um, it as like material for memes and other pop culture was, you know, so um, so important. I also thought there were interesting aspects of it in terms of appropriation um, or just like what has become pop culture now, right? So, you, you know, you watch RuPaul's Drag Race or there's that show Pose and Pose is actually written directly, you know, some of the plots directly out of this film. And you're like, okay, you know, so this is what, you know, if you're 16 years old and you're like a teenage boy or girl you know you're watching rupaul's drag race and you're like this is awesome this how did, where did this come from so it's just like you know knowing that this is the root material i think as a video artist like i often refer to like works from the 1970s and sometimes you forget how monumentally important like a some some body of work um, might be to the future um, but the weird tension i think here is like right after this movie came out like madonna um, put out her Vogue uh, music video. 
Yeah, um, the song was called Vogue. Yeah, and, and then so in it is like voguing and stuff. And, and so you'd be like, wow, Madonna invented Vogue or whatever. Obviously, Madonna didn't. But the really problematic thing is obviously Madonna is, was white and powerful, and these people were poor and not powerful. And in, in the classic sense of the word, uh, or not classic, but, you know, in terms of capital. And so, you know, there's this accusation of, of is this cultural appropriation? We've talked about that on the podcast before. And of course, it is a form of cultural appropriation when Madonna does that. The The accusation, I think, against Jenny Livingston is she was not of this culture. And actually, I didn't even know this. And so I'll just be like vulnerable. I assumed, you know, someone that was familiar or embedded in the culture had filmed the film when I first saw it, because it feels intimate. Like, I don't know about you, but you watch it like yeah. she's she's in their apartments and there's it, it seems like there's very little filter, you know, and there's a lot of close up shots and a lot of like. Well, I think they were very eager to become famous. Everyone in the movie is talking about wanting to be famous. So, of course, if someone comes to film you, you can take the opportunity to be outlandish. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. And I, but I wonder whether any, her, you know, Jenny Livingston said, you know, these were these were images that weren't present prior to this film, like the queer body, the queer performer, the queer, you know, uh, voice was not present in filmmaking, and nor was the real female voice. And so her her point has been like, okay, I may not have been of this culture, but I recognize that the thing, the struggle, yeah, that, but that, you know, I, I, I don't think it was the fact that she was. Uh, not from there because I, I, you know, if you're a photographer, let's say, and you want to take pictures of people in another country, like yeah. you know, let's say you want to take pictures of uh, farmers in Italy or cheesemakers, that's not called. If you, as a Canadian, go to Italy and you're like, I want to study the history of mozzarella and uh, photograph them and all these yeah. old families and how they're doing it, that's not why. What's wrong with that? Well, I think you, as a Canadian, uh, to go to Italy. That's one way of looking at it. Or if I went to Africa and I took pictures of like poor people in their, you yeah. know, in squalid conditions but, or something. But even then, if if you help raise money for the, the people that you photograph, or, or you, you're a war photographer and you help raise awareness that there are atrocities happening. Yeah. Anyway, it's, actually, it's a very I, fine line. I, I do. So I think actually there's tremendous value in the artifact itself, regardless of Jenny Livingston's like own success at the cost or of, of those in the film. Um, I think like, honestly, I enjoyed the material. That's what, and that, that's kind of what I wanted. But sometimes also it, it needs an outsider because I think they were filming the balls before, but uh, sometimes the artists themselves or the scene themselves are not the ones who should document hmm. it. So I think they were shooting home video, uh, but maybe when you're too close to it, you're not documented the right way and the outsider view is more clear. Well, and, yeah, you could also, but I th- I th- you could I also think argue a lot that... Of the, yeah. Sorry. No, I was going to say no, you could I th- also. I think the, part the, of it was the, that the, they felt like they weren't financially compensated, and that the movie did make quite some money, and that they uh, sort of not a class action lawsuit, but they bonded together and they g- did get some money in the end. So I don't know if the struggle was mostly about money. Yeah. Well, I think that there was. Yeah, there were a couple lawsuits, right? But um, yeah. Ultimately, I think the right way though here is like <clears throat> goes without saying probably, but. You know, in in the case of cinema in the United States, it was like repackaging it for white <clears throat> middle class audiences. So, <clears throat> though I don't think the film is for very conventional, or a white middle class audience would particularly no, enjoy it's, it. No, it's 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 not like a, a, where they would take a, a movie about Egypt and have white actors with a little bit of face paint playing Cleopatra and. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So uh, ultimately, I, I think it you know, know it's Sundance is not a mainstream festival by any means. It's, I mean, it is by indie f- film uh, making means, you know, but it's not like if if they had done this with uh, with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan as the cast members, <laughs> that <laughs> right. well, also it wouldn't be a documentary then. Um, but I think no. at the box office, it was like it brought in under four million dollars or something. Um, so it wasn't like. I think we think of whatever the case. It's an indie documentary film, um, so the controversy I think is is relevant in terms of like a lot of what was in the film has ended up in other culture, and people might not recognize that that cultural material was generated by this group. And so I prefer to like talk about cele- like celebrating that the the idea uh, the ideals and the ideas that came out of that subculture. The same way jazz music. You know, I'm not going to, or rock and roll, I'm not going to like attribute it to Elvis Presley, though I might appreciate Elvis Presley. I want, I'm going to go back and say, no, 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 it was these like, these people in this neighborhood that 
really innovated and created this sound. It was later repackaged for mainstream audiences by these people. But the other thing with this stuff is like, you know, some of it actually has been, you know, has continued to evolve within the community, right? Like within the community that it, from which it originated, like there are still balls and there are still, and the, you know, obviously like drag as a culture um, and just like the, the amount of people who, who's in, who are in the film, like that, the, the queer voice is way more prevalent today than it was then. Um, and that is like, I think personally, um, like a positive step. This film is, is part of that. Part of that history, yeah, yeah. Part of the yeah. history of America accepting that um, that queer people were people. Um, now, I think there's still a huge way to go there, and especially among people of color. And so it was like, it, that's where I thought it was a great film to bring forward because it's so far ahead of its time in terms of, you know, um, the ideas in this film uh, that, you could make you could release it today and you'd be like, wow, you know, it's really contemporary. That's what we got to do, kind of thing, yeah. Um, but this is like thirty years old now, right? So, anyway, I really, uh, I really enjoyed it for those reasons. Um, yeah, but it, and I always think uh, you can make a documentary about something abnormal or striking or weird. Like you find something that's crazy, and and the documentary structure itself is very straightforward. Mm-hmm. So I think this documentary falls in that case where uh, you film the events, you interview the people, you cut it together. It, it's not, from a cinematic p- perspective, a wild documentary. The, the scene, the, 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 the subject is wild, but the documentary itself is conservative, I would yeah, say. Yeah, I mean, it, it loosely follows like you know four or five people. Yeah, being, but, but being it's, it's, it's not like in terms of editing or filming it, that it's experimental or... Uh, mm. Like, no, what no. just happened in in a way <laughs> so if if you s- separate the film from the subject then i uh, i felt that the somehow it it felt like you still felt distant from the subject i felt like i didn't really get to know hmm. the protagonists and that uh i don't know did did you feel that way um, well, you know, so obviously there are some, there's a certain distance because the, Like, did it capture the energy that you probably felt if you were at, at a ball like that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. But there, there, like, as far as getting to know the characters, you got to know, you know, part of the character through, but I would argue that their drag persona in many cases was their, tr- like, truly who they wanted to be, right? And that, and that's the, you know, one of the arguments the film makes. And so you're getting yeah. closer to what they aspire to be versus what they've, um, you know, been told they can be based on the, you know, kind of structural oppression or whatever. Maybe what I'm, what I'm getting at also is that now um, everybody has their own channel and you get to know people over a long course of time. So seeing someone talk and that maybe the most characters at at most have eight minutes of, of uh, talking in the movie. Mm-hmm. And you're used to if you follow someone on the internet, you follow them for years, and you see their daily life. You see so many details, and uh, so in that sense, this movie feels like you're just—it's just the peak at the scene. You're not really, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's maybe like where I'm bringing, like you know, it inspired all of my personal experiences. And by the way, my own experiences—I don't mean to recount them to appropriate that this is my culture per se. However, like I'll just say, like in my lifetime, one of the more inspiring groups of people um, that has effect, like, affected just who I am, what I stand for, the type of work that I make, have been people that would, you know, that were um, of a scene that was not exactly this, but similar to this. Like my first mentor is this guy, Colin Campbell, who was a video performance artist and appeared in, in drag in all of his videos um, and, and had several characters that he played. And I actually, you know, never worked as a performance artist in my videos when I was like starting out as a student, but then I got closer and closer to Colin and Colin actually really behaved like um, one of these like uh, leaders of one of these houses in the film. And a house is like, you know, someone who takes in children, quote unquote, um, people who need a family. Um, and um, so Colin did that with me and others and I became Colin's assistant. And then while I was his assistant, he died and he was just so loving and accepting of everyone, no matter what your background was. And these were the ideals that he kind of taught me. And one of the things I think is beautiful about queer culture. And 
through that adoption, which really was a kind of form of adoption, even though I am like, you know, outwardly facing a white man of privilege, he was like, somehow he just made me like a, like a much better person. Anyway, he died. And then like, I started performing after he died because, um, you know, just reflecting on what he had done for me was like, it was a hugely important period of my life. Um, and yeah, and I, you know, and I started appearing in drag in my, in my videos, right. Where you're, um, you're not really certain what my, uh, gender identity is or, or any of that stuff. And, and I've started constructing my own identity because I had been quite ashamed of my identity prior to meeting Colin yeah, and prior to working that I way. I remember meeting a curator and talking about your work and I was like, oh, and then uh, I met Jeremy and his wife. She's like, what? His wife? Are you <laughs> sure? He must be gay. Come on. Yeah. And so, you know, for me and for Kristen as well, I think like, and, and, and it's now contemporary, right? Like to identify with the, the norms of a, of a particular gender seems quite obsolete. And so... I w- but I was introduced to that idea and like, I just never felt like I fit in and, and I didn't feel comfortable with a lot of the terminology. And I think a lot of people out there don't like I didn't feel comfortable calling myself queer or gay or gender fluid or any of these you know labels. And that's what's also beautiful about this film. Like they give themselves their own labels like um, and they create their own language. Um, and I think anyway, I, I found that very exciting Um just as you know, and, as a young and person, there's a lot of art historical context for already with the Mona Lisa. There's a lot of speculation whether that's a man or a woman, or it's not completely sure. There are theories. Well, I often ask myself, like, why is that? You know, what is? Why do I need to know that? And the reason you might need to know well, is the same reason. I, th- I think. I yeah. think the the yeah. reason it's interesting is because um, if there's a tension, it's a, something that. that when things are very straightforward and clear, I think it's less interesting than when you're like, there's a mystery. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's the thing about an art, like an artwork. And when you consider identity and how we how identity is e- either constructed by ourselves or by other people, um, you know, a better artwork or like a richer identity for me anyway, is one where you you can't jump to any conclusions about who I am and what I stand for by just looking at me, right? Like, and so you should there should be a little bit of um, conflict in what I present to the world because I'm not going to be defined as one thing, right? And I think in this film, you see that fluidity in a really exciting way where people um, either have a character or multiple characters that they play and they've constructed those identities, you know, down to like the earrings that they wear or how they walk or all of these things. And uh, in their when, their collecting material, just like an artist would, you know. What I found interesting is that I've always been attracted to the idea of less clutter and and direct expression with the things that are already around you and materials that you have around you. And then the body is a very everybody has a body, and a, mm-hmm. y- you don't need to carry anything around. You don't need a studio. But then seeing this documentary is it's quite cumbersome. There's a lot of outfits and either going shopping or stealing or constructing. There's a mm. lot of... Uh, and they talk about that in the film, right? This concept yeah. of mop- mopping or stealing And there's like the first generation was, was sort of like old Hollywood glam and they would construct their own outfits out of feathers and glitter and beads. And, and then the next generation was more like, uh, we're like Manhattanites and we want to wear Gucci and Versace. And so they would acquire the outfits instead of making them but but the point i'm getting at is that sort of the pure idea of performance art is like there's the human body of the performer and then there's the audience and that's all you need and there's something zen about the idea of like you're an artist but you don't need a studio you don't need to record anything you're just there yeah well, and we've talked we've, we've it, talked about this before, and I think if you were to separate it from this community, the comparison would be well. First of all, dance is like the purest form of creative expression because it's the only material is your body, right? Yeah, but w- what I'm getting at is that that seems that it would be that way, but then it turns out when you want to dance, you need a studio and you need lighting mm-hmm. and you need music and maybe there's costumes and there's so moves, even an artist, specific moves too. Yeah. And even an artist like Tino Segal, he's like, I don't fly. I only travel by land mm-hmm. and uh, there's no recording of the performance, but still it's a whole operation. There's a lot of, uh, it's, 
Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I care what you're saying, because you could make the same argument like stand up comedy is like this pure form of art where you just generate, you know, material from. Yeah, it's just ideas being passed from one vessel to the other. Yeah. Um, and in a way, I guess, it's, you know, kind of similar to stand up comedy, like um, some of what you see in, in the ball context or, or any performance really is like, let's generate some, you know, something with just the pure will of our beings. Um, it's but, just attitude. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but you're right. There are some there's some artifice built into this that I think is an interesting tension overall. And, just and one like, of the in in the ball movie, there's a one of the older uh, performers, and he's they film him while he's doing his face. It's like a lot of work. It's, uh, so he's applying eyelashes and a wig and a sort of old glamour Hollywood style. Uh, I can't remember his name. I think it's Dor- one- Dorian Corey. Yeah, and he talks about the older generation making their own outfits and the newer generation either stealing or buying their outfits. Mm-hmm. The difference with it, and then I saw that little clip of the life after Paris is burning, and apparently he had a, a body <laughs> that either died or was murdered that he kept in his apartment for 27 years, sort of mummified in a suitcase. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> what I'm getting at is sort of... Um, this idea that of it, it, it seems that performance is immaterial, and it turns out that it's very material. That's maybe what I'm getting at. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's certainly like you know that was a weird. That's a weird twist <laughs> that came out of it. Where <laughs> Not to uh, go there? Yeah, yeah, but yeah, everyone, yeah, maybe who reads about this online will find out that there's a lot of stories that followed this film um, after it was made, like of the char- you know, the characters themselves, because they were quite honestly just interesting sometimes bizarre like sometimes um just you know they were they were pushing the envelope in multiple ways let's put it that way um yeah there's there's an element of danger yeah i mean it's like you you feel it in the performance it's very different from just like a a mainstream the voice or some show like that where people just perform there's there's a there's an urgency that you don't feel in a normal mainstream performance yeah, I think it's like hard to convey that like, um, I don't know, but the communities that we, I've been part of in my life, very few of them have had that sort of like normal, um, like there's always like, I mentioned, you know, Colin, who is, uh, who died, but I didn't mention that he was involved in a love triangle that ended in a murder that I was a suspect in. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, like, and yeah. I sometimes keep some of this stuff to myself, but like, not, and I don't think that's characteristic necessarily of these communities. That would be absurd, but, um, life is, no, but maybe it's, it's characteristic that a lot of, uh, interesting ideas are born in, uh, dangerous context that you, if, if you go on vacation, let's say, to club med with your family, you're not going to find an interesting subculture starting compared to, uh, like, the way the Sex Pistols started or the yeah. way punk started. There was a lot of danger, like there was, or the way hip hop started or the way drag culture started. I'm saying that those things don't happen in the suburbs. That's what I'm saying. No, yeah, and I, but I would actually, I, you know, I'd posit that you know a lot of why um, the you know subcultures emerge out of. Um, you know, areas where there's, you know, a lot of, um, you know, struggle, struggle is that like those constraints become creative constraints. And so you can't, I can't just do it the way someone else is doing it because I don't have the privilege to do so. And so I have to invent a new way to do things, um, you know, bear, you know, bearing anyone coming and saying like, yeah, here's just free stuff. Here's equipment. Here's like, you know, a studio. I don't. You know, yeah, and yeah, we've yeah. talked about this but even that, as internet that goes artists. back to the struggling artist myth and the and the sort of tragic artist myth that you have to suffer for your work. Well, no, yeah, but I think like you know, constraints can often lead to. I mean, it's the mother. You know, it's a bit of a cliche. It's like you know, uh, the mother invention of invention is um, is a scarcity or whatever. But um, yeah, ultimately, it's quite true that when like right now, you know, you know, um, we're seeing people at home with COVID figure out how to be normal, which is like really funny, right? Because in some cases they're failing. Um, but I'm certain, and whether or not we've seen it yet is maybe a matter of debate that new ideas and new modes of expression that we didn't expect will, will emerge yeah. out of this. Now that doesn't make it great by any means. Like I'm not saying like COVID's awesome, but I, I do believe that these constraints sometimes lead well, to creative change, breakthroughs. Change forces you to rethink things. Yeah. 
Yeah, take a step back. But, but I want to I want to counter the argument a little bit that, uh, uh, let's say that uh, a, a difficult context and a sort of uh, struggle and a urban center that that would create new cultural moments. Mm-hmm. I think if you go through history, there are cultural moments of things that happened in. Uh, I'm a big fan of black metal, and that happened in Norway. And they said a big part of it is growing up in Norway, knowing everything is fine. Like mm-hmm. uh, the government is there for you. You're not going to die. You're not going to be hungry. And you still feel like shit. And knowing that it's your fault, it's not an oppressor. That's what created that culture, hmm. according to them. So you could be in the suburbs and and create something interesting and and know that even though everything seems materially completely yeah. fine that might be a very interesting context like skate- skateboarding was invented in this in the suburbs of california yeah yeah, yeah. so example. so the the idea that you have to be repressed to to get to new ideas that uh, i don't think that's true but it does like beg you know the question why do why is it so often that young people you know are generate new ideas you know and what so maybe the the counter argument would be like the counter to the counter would just be like if you're too naive to know that there's another way to do things you invent a new way yeah but that's also i think what we talked about before uh this idea of selfishness and that as a young person you can afford to be selfish so you you don't have dependence or responsibilities and i think uh if you're like okay i want to play my guitar for 12 hours a day or Mm -hmm. i want to work on my dance moves for 14 hours a day and you can't do that when you have children and a family and a job and all those things yeah these all become sort of like rote constraints that are not like they yeah and so maybe that goes back to the idea that actually selfishness it can be very generous perhaps (laughs) i I mean ultimately that's the argument i was making at the outset which is like i think so, you know, you can generate something from the self um, that happens to be generous toward the world. Uh, and so. And then, and then I'm going to say something that might sound too simplistic and you might cringe, but that <laughs> uh, if you're gay or whatever label you want to put on it and you're not going to have a family, that that leaves more room for creativity or uh, self-expression, that you can focus on things that you can't focus on if you have a family. Yeah, I hope our audience isn't cringing when I speak or when you speak on the on the matter, but like, obviously, <laughs> but what we're talking about is normativity. I'm cringing, so. No, normativity is really what we're talking about, and so that, that, like, let's get out, and then you can get outside of all of the things that might make you uncomfortable about it, but that's the way of, like, really abstracting it, but there are normative cultures, which are it's rehearsing for a play we've seen a thousand times and then there are non-normative uh cultures and though and that is one where we invent new rules that don't that you know are new plays right and these well, new plays you, are really interesting when you look at, at surrealism and you have someone like uh, dali and you have someone like magritte and and dali was the outlandish character the, who was always performing Mm-hmm. And he wanted to create the wildest life full of uh, celebrities and crazy people and just stunts all the time. And then you have someone who, like Magritte who was uncomfortable traveling. He didn't like being around other artists or media. He lived in the suburbs in Belgium and he dressed as a banker or sort of a business person and he, he painted in his living room. He said, I don't want a studio. I don't want to appear to be an artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when it was lunchtime or dinner time, he would put the work in the cupboard and take out the dining table and then move it back again and paint in his suit. Whether mm. this was all completely true, I don't know, but that was the persona. It was almost like what you see in the movie of people pretending to be a, a normal person when they're clearly not. Well, I mean, you remember the... But, but, but the, what I'm getting the, at is that even even in the suburbs, you can create really weird things. Yeah, and my, my point is that, that you know, so normative is like, is I'm, I'm saying that's a, I'm putting shade, that's a shade term, like that's my shade <laughs> term, and like non-normative is my sunshine term. But um, I think maybe like it's a good segue into talking about the music, because I know there's some listeners that really want to talk about music. But Yeah, we, of, watched, we reviewed so many movies that actually the soundtracks have been... Uh, I've spent, for example, we reviewed Tokyo Ga last week, and I've seen the movie maybe three times, but I've probably played the soundtrack a thousand times. I get played all the time. So it's funny that we get caught up in the plot and then don't talk about the music. Yeah, and like one of the songs um, that's probably most prevalent in this film is um, 
God, I'm I'm just looking up the name of the song, but it's the To Be Real song. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know who's, who sings it in the film? No, but it's like a club song. To Be Real. You know that song? Yeah. <laughs> and it's a reference to a concept that's explored in the film about, you know, being real is being as close um, to the pres- the presentation of, like, to, to what you're trying to perform. So as close to the real thing so if you're trying to be a businessman or a business person in the you know in your in your persona presentation it'd be like you're so close like i can i can't tell the difference but obviously it was also like if you're trying to be a woman you like i couldn't tell whether you're a man or a woman um well the real that's is being interesting real. from from the point of view of the platonic ideal that uh, uh andy warhol wrote this book from a to b and back again and it talks about all kinds of things and he talks about he had a lot of drag performance in the f- factory as uh, part of the scene. And he said they're better at being women than real women. He did? Yeah. And so, <laughs> <laughs> am I insulting someone? I don't no, know. No, no, but, no. I, I, just, uh, I was just looking up the, God, the, the, the soundtrack. But, yeah, uh, but this idea that um, this, the source of, of the caricature might not be as real as the caricature. Right, right, right. Yeah, like like the stereotype of that caricature. Well, I mean, that's one of the interesting yeah. things. Like, and that that might go back to this movie that uh, amongst themselves they had shot the balls and uh, like with people from the scene, and they probably used the VHS recorder, and it wasn't that good. Mm-hmm. And it took an outsider to capture it. Yeah, I'm still not convinced that that you know it, that someone from within the community couldn't shoot that because there are there was a film that came out i think after like 10 years later that was like created inside the scene i think it's called um the look or something i haven't seen it but it's referenced in some well that says uh, yeah yeah it says it already yeah but um well maybe but like the time of you know remember timing has a lot to do with the success of the film um and yeah but but, you know, but, but let's flip this completely to the normative conservative thing if someone had to make a documentary about evangelicals mm-hmm. you would probably sooner watch it made by an outsider than by an insider because you don't want them to portray themselves you, you want a, a view from the outside because that will give you it's it's very likely if if someone from the evangelical world would make a documentary about their world that they would only show the bright side and make it like an infomercial I don't know. Like, if uh, it was a if it was a movie about the hip hop scene and it was like filmed by um, like Steven Spielberg, <laughs> like yeah, I don't think yeah, I want to yeah. see Steven Spielberg's view of the hip hop scene. I no, but see, like hip hop is a good example. There's a there's a photographer called Glenn Friedman, mm-hmm. and he was he he was very early to shoot the Beastie Boys, but also uh, album covers for people like Ice T and LL Cool J. And also metal bands and uh, skateboarding, and he was in the culture, but he wasn't. Mm-hmm. He wasn't but, uh, a rapper himself, and he shot all the iconic. Well, because in the movie, covers that you might, yeah, might in recognize. the movie, there's yeah. a couple cringeworthy scenes though, where there's like you know near the end, they're at the the beauty, the Ford beauty pageant, and <laughs> they show these like these white male reporters interviewing um, like the the like. You know, people yeah. that are the judges yeah, of the pageant. Yeah, it shows you back then that the the media was even more oh. like a caricature of a news anchor. Yeah, Hello, like people, we are here yeah, live today. Totally. And then the questions like, "What do you think this means for the women's lib movement?" <laughs> like, <laughs> like, dude, like, why are you asking that question? Like, as if you're trying to like, you know call out or reveal something about the hypocrisy of women's liberation. So, you know, like, I think that. Um, all of that's like, I, it's actually funny because I think a lot of the controversy that Jenny Livingston in, in, w- invited is actually invited in the film because the film is about the identity, construction of identity. <clears throat> and ultimately her identity came into question after the film. And th- the, that's why the film probably is still referenced, is still so important to so many people um, because ultimately this is like, it's not, it's it predates the film by 500 years and it, it postdates the film by 500 years. It's just like, it's something that will always be here, right? But it, would you say that uh, we, we can argue whether someone else could have made a better documentary about the scene, but do you think it's the best documentary about this phenomenon? Well, uh, that I've seen, yeah. and But yeah. I, I mean, I, I haven't because seen that's, enough. Because that's, yeah. in the end, the proof is in the pudding. And like if, if nobody else from 
within the you could argue okay they didn't have access to the financial means to make this movie um but apparently I think this is such a niche culture that just not many documentaries but have been not, made. But it's, so it's not. It's not anymore. To compare. It's not niche anymore. No, right? I know. I know. But it's niche compared to, let's say, uh, documentaries about hip hop, because that's a way bigger. Mm-hmm. Th- there's been a lot more documentaries, so I think in hip hop you can compare. Like, okay, that was an insider who made the movie, and that one felt like an infomercial. Yeah. And, well, now yeah. I think though, with like, you know, like like I mentioned two mainstream things: Pose and RuPaul's. Like RuPaul's in like what, like 12 seasons or 10 seasons or something like that. So at this point, like, you know, it's packaged, but, you know, you could buy, you can buy like, you know, drag kit, you know, at Walmart or something like that. I don't, I think like, um, we've jumped the shark of it being a niche thing or anything. It's definitely, no, but it's still, it's still, um, I think there was a recent documentary, the art of rap where ice T interviews different rappers and it was really about the craft mm-hmm. of of rhyming it it wasn't about the uh sort of the money and the fame or the, those sort of things it was really technical so he would go see and of course he's iced tea so he's friends with everybody from back in the day and then yeah, yeah. just interviews everybody about the 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 structure of how to build up a song and the subjects and how many times you rhyme something in a row and alliteration it really sort of and I don't. I think that was a very insider, hmm. uh, honest portrayal of that. But I don't think it went anywhere. It wasn't very sensational. So maybe this. That that's. The, I think that's the word we're getting at. Is this documentary exploit, exploiting well, it's, the it, scene? It's is interesting. It right, yeah, the other movie I'm watching right, or the series I'm watching right now on Netflix is about Michael Jordan, um, and his 1990s kind of career peak, and. Um, and it's filmed by like Michael Jordan's people, <laughs> so it's like very, like much celebrating. Uh, yeah, and like that's about as mainstream as, as you can get, like professional sports. That's mm-hmm. that's about as as popular of a, of a subject as you can get. It's very interesting though, because uh, you know there is like this. There's a huge tension between like the white management and the black players and the the, yeah. the subcultures, and um, but ultimately, it you know it's. Uh, Jordan retelling his story and I guess you you come back like outside of this movie it's the story it's autobiography or biography and I don't know if I take a position on one being better than the other but you're right they're different um and ultimately like you know well, it's like do you know the photographer Martin Parr um no tell me about him and he he photographs a lot of sort of British people on vacation and uh he's British himself and it, it's it's kind of endearing, like people being a bit too sunburnt and their ice cream is melting. And it's not really mocking, but it's also a little bit distant. And I don't think, even if he was born there, I think as soon as you grab a camera, you're just not part of the event. It's uh, you, you still feel that he is making fun of it a little bit. I don't even know enough of his background, where he grew up and what his parents did and but th- what he had access to. But at yeah. some point you become a professional and you're, you're a voyeur. But you, re- you, you reminded me of the, of the American tradition of photography and, and where this fits in, which is like, if you look at kind of your Deanne Arbus's or your, um, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, like the American tradition of shooting American, like shoot from the hip, like documentary style photography and Diane, Diane Arbus is an interesting like person just to talk about for a moment. She took photos of circus freaks and they're inside their homes. And I, I use that term just like <clears throat> loosely for what it was characterized as, as the time. I don't believe actually these people are freaks by any measure, but she, you know, it would be but like the were, world's tallest uh, man. Common topic. There were, there were people that wouldn't normally be photographed. Yeah. And she would photograph them not only photograph them, but they also photograph them in their homes, which added this dimension of like humanizing them. Um, but she herself was not of that community. Right. Um, and yeah, it's exactly like this documentary. Yeah. And I wonder if, uh, it's time for us to do a takedown of Deanna, <laughs> but uh, like it's time for her to like, pay her dues. Castle. But, <laughs> but uh, the, you know, there's other, there's other folks like, um, 
in the American tradition who have either like film, you know, taken photos of the American drug scene in Nebraska or like, you know, the in different subcultures. I went to school with uh, Latoya Ruby Fraser. Her and I were together uh, at the same time at Syracuse. And she's now like a, a well-known American photographer of this style who takes photos of like, you know, honestly the black pro- poverty that she grew up with. And, you know, her mother, um, you know, she would do videos while I was in school of her mother. She'd take photos of her, of, of young kids in the neighborhood that were, you know, in some pretty uh, terrible conditions. And I remember she was like, obviously at Syracuse where it's like, it's a super white school. And so she'd present her photos and we'd be like, like Latoya, you can't take these photos of like the, and she'd take them in black and white from like up high. And we're like, this is manipulative. This is like, you're taking something from these people. And she's is like, she exploiting these people. Yeah. But, and, but this was her own fucking family. Obviously we were not right to say this. Right. Um, and she was trying to express something that she's like, well, no one is telling the story from my perspective. Um, and even in that context, I bring it up just because even in that context, she was of it. And we were still accusing her of being, exploitative um as as a student a white body student group right like um and i'm trying to think of the of the worst example of exploitation do you remember that phenomenon uh, bum fights oh god yes i do but there was a movie so it was like frat house guys sort of like rich kids who sort of created a startup where they would just pay homeless people to fight each other and they would film it like i think that's the most extreme of like and they put out DVDs paying people and stuff. to incite violence and to and because they're poor like that's yeah. the clearest example of exploit just to, just to sort of uh, set the scale of exploitation there's like from from 0 to 100 yeah but i think it's not something that's going to go away and specifically artists um are like, but you 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 could say that something like instagram is exploitative where it it creates this uh, psychological mechanism where there's a reward for popularity and people get addicted to it, and they make a lot of money on each user, and the user doesn't get that money, or rarely. Well, I think in the internet generation, right, the idea of cop... This is where I started the conversation around memes at the outset, which is like, we've the internet's kind of normalized the concept of appropriation as a copy and paste and edit routine, right? Where you didn't have to go get the copyright and, yeah, the material. Yeah, and, and then there's the attention economy, so whatever you can find to get attention. Yeah. And so, you know, you might mash up and this has come up several times online, specifically because of in TikTok culture, but all of the other like VSK, uh, Visco and stuff, all these other social networks where dances originate. And oftentimes these dances will originate in a community like or among a, just a group of kids. And then a choreographer picks up on it. And then like before you know it, it's like, you know, Beyonce is dancing to it on stage at Coachella. And you're like, what? Like, it wasn't it like a like, you know, um, you know lisa 15 on on tiktok yeah. that like originated that and is she getting credit but you know i can remember giving talks on like memes and like 15 years ago for marketing professionals and like i was like you have to understand like kids today they don't like obey your copyright rules <laughs> like <laughs> but it's interesting now that it's kind of reversed where like a a lot of the time um artists and you know young people are generating new ideas and then you know before you know it it's a dance in f- you know, Fortnite that people are paying fifteen dollars for as an emote for. You know, um, it, it, it is interesting that so if we're talking about exploitation and authorship, that a lot of art, uh, starting with Duchamp and the idea of appropriation and saying, okay, I found a bicycle wheel or a wine rack and I'm going to call it art and I'm not going to credit the original. Mm-hmm. That was sort of the original. The ready-made. And it, it, mm-hmm. Yeah, and he was also using drag uh, performances. So he, he predates a lot of these ideas. Um, but the idea of the powerful white man who has access to the gallery and then it's like, oh, I found a Brillo box. I don't even care who made it. I'm just going to copy it. You yeah. know? And, yeah. and there's a moment where Warhol had his exhibition with his Brillo boxes and the designer of the Brillo box came to the opening and was very upset. And uh, I, I might have mentioned this on the podcast before, but he was an abstract expressionist who, as his day job, was a graphic designer. And so he wanted to sort of create this Brillo packaging that had the same kind of energy as abstract expression. It was a very sincere gesture of like, I want to create a packaging that feels lively and energetic and optimistic. And then Warhol just 
basically copied it uh, uh, on on wood and mm-hmm. silk screened it and put it in the gallery and eventually he Warhol gave the original creator one of his brillo boxes and signed it for him that's how they made a deal but i think art has this thing where it feels like a you're in a niche culture and the mainstream will take your ideas, but then most art is constantly sampling or appropriating even. No, you're right. Yeah. And I, especially when it's not successful, it, you always seem like the underdog. And then as soon as you get bigger, uh, the perception changes. But, you know, if you're, if you're a young artist and you're like, oh, I'm going to put an iMac in the gallery and call it a sculpture, mm-hmm. uh, then Apple is such a powerful entity and you're just a young artist. But when you're... In the case of Warhol, he would take images like his flowers. Those were photographs by a, an artistic photographer. They weren't stock images, and he didn't have any of the rights. And uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I was, I was. I, I, I don't know what I'm getting at, yeah. but there's always this balance of the 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 taker and the giver, and and. But that's just it. What, it's a balance. What right? economic power they have? I think it's what you add to it with, you know, like whether you add. Yeah, and and recognizing where it came from, like, but you know, I was doing some research on this, the history of the smiley face. Um, yeah, and it was originally invented. Um, Forrest know. Gump invented it. Sorry, Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Do you yeah, remember yeah. in the movie? Yeah, yeah. That's we should review Forrest Gump for its like <laughs> cultural uh, meaningfulness. But it was invented yeah. by a designer actually, who was like trying to design a slogan for an insurance company to like pep people up and make them feel positive. But then, of course, it was later, um, you know, evolved and appropriated by various counterculture movements. Like, but the fact is, it was, you know, designed for an insurance company. <laughs> um, yeah, same with the I Love New York logo that, that became any campaign. I was just like, I love, I heart something. But somebody invented that. Well, the I Love New York was Milton Glaser. Um, yeah. And Milton Glaser, famous designer, you know, um, created it you know, like in an afternoon, I, I don't know if you know much about it, but like he, he created very quickly actually. Um, and it just, be, it was such a simple idea. It spread obviously like wildfire. And it's such an obvious idea that you cannot imagine someone came up with it. The, the idea of the letter I and then the heart and then something. <laughs> yeah. But that's like, or, you know, or like maybe Robert Indiana's like, um, is, is it, oh, what's yeah. Indiana's first His love name? sculpture. Yeah. His love sculpture. Yeah. yeah. But I think that's the whole point of this uh, this episode. Ultimately, is like it's it seems like it's an obvious idea, and that's the that's what brilliant ideas are. Often they're like it seems obvious in retrospect, but like no doubt, like all of the stuff that came out of this this film, including the language that we all like take for granted today, like "yas queen" or "stop throwing shade" or "that's shady" or like "you're not real" or "be real," all that stuff originated in you know that that's just the language examples originated like "child" uh, originated in the in not only in this film but in this culture, um, and you can't take that for granted. It seems obvious in retrospect, but it was all generated by people. I mean, everything is like at the end of the day, but. Um, it, oftentimes I think it's just like, it's, it wasn't like, um, again, it wasn't like target that came out with, uh, the smiley face icon and made it important. And it wasn't even the insurance guy. Right. No, it was like, but it, it was carried it, forward. It is funny. It is funny that, um, I always thought that how long does it take for things to surface in art? So when was the, the Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola bottle designed and how long did it take for that to appear in art history? And I think, Dali was one of the first to to make paintings with Coke bottles in it. Mm -hmm. But then Warhol really nailed it. Um, But the Coke bottle had been around for 50 years. And so there's that... Art always takes from the mainstream. But then when mainstream takes from art, then it it feels very different. I think, yeah, I think that that's that's what we've talked about previously. And it's just the... It's who's in control when, like, who's taking from who, and what is the power relationship between the two? So, well, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. It can be hard to draw the line sometimes, though, when the power, when the person that it's appropriating feels like they're not powerful. And the, and, yeah, and, and just in, to wrap it in around. In the case film. of this movie, it, it, the the whole cast was dying and broke and homeless. So it's a very extreme situation. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And Jenny Livingston's point that she was like a female filmmaker that was just starting out, um, you know, had, there's some resonance to that. But, you know, I think by comparison, the population that she was filming um, felt like they were in much more desperate circumstances. And of course, yeah. you know, like the film has been very important, though, to a lot of people who 
have felt marginalized. And I think that's why it, it continues to be an important cultural artifact because it makes people feel less alone. They, they feel marginalized, right? And so I think that that's, that has cultural value and, um, and will continue to, to do so probably. Uh, but I think the torch has long since been carried forward um, by tons of other creators. Um, and there's much more room to tell more non-normative stories. And um, anyway, I just thought it was a good film to share because, well, it yeah. turns out there's a lot to discuss. Yeah, uh, it's good. Yeah. Um, and uh, I encourage you to watch it. A little bit uncomfortable in there, so that's good. Yeah. yeah, if our listeners haven't watched it, it is it is on Netflix, it's on HBO, it's even on YouTube. So um, like, you can easily find it. Yeah. And, uh, and what so we, yeah, what's, next, what's week? next week, yeah. Well, because we were trying to do movies by female directors, I thought of American Psycho, uh, which seems like a misogynist film, but was directed by a woman who also claims to be a feminist. So I mean, no, I mean, it's a deeply satirical uh, film, yeah. right? So. Uh, we, you will so, you, like we. I think it's like probably. I think it's one of those movies that most of our listeners have seen, so it's kind of fun reviewing it and not having to focus on the plot. To, and, and so it's familiar material. Should we ask our uh, folks if they, there's stuff we should be watching that we're not? Because we've sort of just. I, I was thinking like, are we going to slide deeper and deeper into like more and more obscure documentary films and stuff like that? And, <laughs> and eventually, am I going to be like sharing well, we video did Sonic videos? Yeah, no, it's true. It's yeah. true. Um, but it, I guess if there are suggestions out there, I want to also make sure that people feel like they can suggest something. Um, ultimately, I think what, the way we're taking this on is like we're just kind of surfing it like a wave and seeing where it takes us. And if you're comfortable yeah. with that, um, that's great. If you're not, let us know. Um, All right. Okay, Thank I guess for that's listening. It. Yeah, and we didn't talk about music again. Maybe next week. Yeah. <laughs> next week, American Psycho. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening, everyone. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. So voguing is like a safe form of throwing shade. Judges, judges, get into the form and the style. Word. Let's hear it for her. God the name damn was taken it. from the magazine Vogue because some of the movements of the dance are also the same as the poses inside the magazine. The name is a statement in itself. I mean, you really wouldn't go to a ball to do the Mademoiselle. No way. Like break dancing, the dance takes from the hieroglyphics of ancient Egypt. It also takes from some forms of gymnastics. They both strive for perfect lines in the body, awkward positions, but it goes one step further. <laughs> <laughs> 